Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Renovatio podcast. My name is Imran Ali Malik. What happened to philosophy and the liberal arts? With technology at the forefront of society, these subjects that once represented our highest ideals in education seem to have lost their status in our universities today. Yet, they remain as important as ever. We bring you a conversation today between two thinkers who have dedicated their lives to studying and teaching these subjects. Hamza Youssef is president and co-founder of Zaytuna College and also serves as editor-in-chief of our publication. Eva Bran is former dean at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, a liberal arts college that maintains a distinctive pedagogical style. Students read primary texts in small seminars guided not by professors, but tutors. Dr. Brand has been a tutor at St. John's College since 1957, and in 2005 won the National Humanities Medal for her teaching and writing. Dr. Brian and Hamza Yusuf have written essays on philosophy and liberal education that are available to read at renovatio.zaytuna.edu. We hope that you find this conversation edifying, and if you do, please consider sharing it with your friends and colleagues. Thank you. So we're really fortunate today to have with us, I think, really one of the treasures of our what's left of our civilization anyway um, Dr. Eva Bran who's been uh, originally an archaeologist and but for over 60 years been teaching at uh, uh, one of our great institutions for the preservation of of western uh, tradition and culture and civilization at St. John's in Annapolis so welcome uh, Dr. Bran Oh, it's good to be with you, Hamza. Yeah. Thank you. Um, just to open up, philosophia, you know, the love of, of wisdom. Um, why, why, do, why does it matter? Well, I begin right away with making a distinction. It seems to me that there is a profession called philosophy, and it's carried on in academic settings by people who make their living at it. And uh, it's a perfectly useful kind of thing, like all other competences. But it's not what you're asking about. Am I right in thinking that? Well, I think Kierkegaard said it best uh, when he said that uh, the emperors had such a great fear of philosophers that in order to defang them, he, he gave them jobs and called them professors. <laughs> yeah, that's about what I'm thinking. But then there's the other activity, which is not a profession, but a way of life. And it seems to me that it's really not different from being all there. That is, people may not call it philosophy, but everyone does it insofar as they, uh, as they want to know what they're doing, what the point of it all is, what the meaning of their lives is, all those questions that people ask themselves. Those are philosophical questions. And the importance of it is that if you don't do it, you're somehow not quite alive. And uh, uh, that seems to me to be true of the sort of philosophy 
we're both talking about the kind that isn't carried on necessarily as a profession. Right. Actually, some professional philosophers are also real philosophers. I don't, I don't want to shortchange them. But it's not a money-making, career-advancing activity, but a way of being. And it doesn't necessarily carry it on in school. It's carried on by anyone um, who wants to be aware of him or herself and of the world around them. One, one of the things that I tell my students is that if you don't philosophize, somebody's going to do it for you. <laughs> that, that is very true. And then it's called ideology. Exactly. And ideology, or yeah. sophistry for that matter, differs from philosophy being something that's done to you rather than something you do for yourself, among other things. There are other differences. Philos uh, is an adjective, and philia is a noun, and one means being, being friendly, being in a relation of friendship. Uh, the other one means the friendship itself, and... Uh, Sophia is, I think, rightly translated as wisdom, and it is different from being smart. In fact, I have grave doubts about smart people ever being wise, but that's a personal prejudice of mine, I'll, I'll say. So, philosophia is a friendly and open and affectionate attitude for wisdom understood not as a way of being uh, highly intellectual or highly rational or highly competent, but as a way of musing, thinking, wondering, so that instead of letting things go by unquestioned and unpacked, one wonders and then one thinks. And it is an activity, to my mind, which has two aspects. One is that you have to do it by yourself, when you're by yourself. And the other one is you have to do it when you're talking to people. And obviously you need friends to be friendly to wisdom. And you also need to be alone on occasions. That exchange between being together and being alone seems to me an important part of philosophy. And if you can't stand to be alone by yourself, you'd be very apt not to be in a philosophical frame of mind. Yes. In the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle, he, he, he goes through the, the virtues, uh, the intellectual virtues, and the highest one being Sophia. How, how do you, his understanding of that, how do, you, how do you see that? And do you think it's the... It's an accurate understanding. Yes, he says something rather mystifying. He says, being friends is a virtue. That is, friendship is a virtue. So being a friendly toward wisdom is certainly a virtue of some sort. But whether it's an intellectual virtue or moral virtue, that seems to me an interesting question. What, do, you, do you have an opinion about that? Well, I think he understood it in terms of its relationship to a type of intuition, the fundamental uh, intelligence that human beings are given, and then the relationship to that fundamental intelligence with an acquired intelligence. And, and there was a type of synergism when these are working together that produces a type of wisdom. I mean, he's clearly talking about something that to me seems very mystical, some deep contemplation um, 
that that's the result of the perfection of one's virtue of wisdom. Yeah, you know what I find particularly interesting, what you've just said, is that you began not as a professional philosophers would. They'd begin by talking about rationality and set it off against faith. But you began by talking about intuition, which is not the same as rationality. And right. I think that's absolutely right, that the root of wisdom is in, I'll translate it into English, uh, it's not so much insight, intuition, as it is the, the Latin in there is translate, can be translated into English at, at sight. In other words, there's a belief that it's possible to have a mental vision of some sort, which is very different from uh, being capable of rational, linear argument. And this is the question to me. Is this a peculiar point of view from having read a lot of ancient philosophy, or is this simply the nature of the thing, that true philosophy is not so much a question of rationalizing and finding logical uh, connections between things, but much more a matter of having intellectual vision? Is that what you were implying? I that's yeah. I think that's very close to what I was thinking. One of the things that strikes me as very interesting is if it begins in wonder, and it also, in essence, is sustained throughout life. One of my teachers said that uh, children and philosophers, and probably quoting somebody, but but children and philosophers uh, live in a state of wonder. And, And I think it has something to do with the newness of one of the things that's so difficult for for people and David Foster Wallace I, I don't know if you've read his essay um, this is water but um, he talks about the the monotony of day in and day out and how overwhelming that becomes for people and one of the things that Van Doren said in the liberal education he talks about something happens to people at about 40 where the monotony of life gets to them but one of the things about being in a state of, of wonderment, I don't think it'll precipitate that type of crisis because there's a type of newness that, 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 that every moment really is a new moment. Yeah, but it's not a novel moment. That is to say, I, I, I want to distinguish between new and novel. Novel is something, usually something invented to be different from everything else. But this newness is newness to me, not newness in itself. Exactly. No, I think that's a really good distinction because one of the obsessions of our culture is novelty. Exactly. And it isn't that at all. Exactly. No, I'm talking about, it's something that in some traditions they talk about sacred monotony. Yes. The, the, uh, of, of, and, and one of the things that he says is that the liberal arts is something that knows what to do with monotony because there's a constant honing of the skills. I, I, and, want, to, I want to give an example here of what you're saying. I, I don't know what made me do it, but I was looking up um, philosophy in one of the encyclopedias. And I found a quote there by, I think it was Bernard Williams, who said that heaven must be very boring because the angels do nothing but hum one note of peace. <laughs> and I thought to myself, he hasn't got a clue. Exactly. Not that I think I have a clue, but a little more than that. <laughs> Look, I, I, 
I want to go back to uh, what we said about wonder. I think of wonder as the secular version, or in this case, the philosophical version of reverence. What shows itself in religious people as reverence shows itself in philosophical people as wonder. I think that's that's a perfect assessment. But then I want to ruin this right away by saying <laughs> that I'm not sure that in the end uh, faith and philosophy are distinguishable. Every truly interesting philosophical system I've ever read about, uh, from Plato through Aristotle to Kant and Hegel, is ultimately a theology. That is, the final wisdom to be reached has something to do with God and the realm uh, of the transcendent. And I'm not sure that the distinction so often made between philosophy as being secular and rational and religion as being, of course, transcendent and irrational, that this is right. I, I think it's a very modern a, idea. A forced idea, not a natural one. And right. Not only because almost all philosophers, uh, not the ones who, who spend all that time making up uh, difficult puzzles, which they then find a solution for, but uh, the ones who are really interested in finding a meaningful interpretation of the world as a whole, they are almost all theologies. But conversely, every religious text I've ever read, I mean, to, uh, in your kind of reading, it would be someone else, but for me it's Thomas Aquinas, uh, are philosophers. And in fact, I have colleagues who think that uh, Thomas is more a philosopher than even a theologian. So these two realms are not easily distinguishable, and if you begin by splitting them apart, you're going to end with a split world. I, I don't believe in it. Fragmented, yes. Well, I think it's interesting because the first philosophy, what used to be called first philosophy, the idea of, of getting to first causes, that, that huge question of why there's something as opposed to nothing. It has to take you to, to some level. It has to take you to the doorstep of the ineffable. I, that's exactly what I was about to add. Uh, being is never the end. There's always something beyond being, something that is not among the various beings in the world and that is therefore ineffable. But in some some way, one can reach for it. One can get some sort of notion of what it is. I'm thinking of the idea of the good in the Republic. I'm thinking of the uh, of the God yes. who is mind in Aristotle, Zeus, as as it is in Greek, and it's tr certainly true of the theologians that it always ends with some with a being that is reachable, not by saying anything positive. And, and reachable through the via negativa, through rejecting any likeness. Yeah, exactly. Any... That's what I'm talking about. In, uh, in Islamic theology, we have a, a, a statement that the beginning theology student has to learn, which is that, uh, in, it's very nice in Arabic, Kulluma khattar bi barika. 
which means that anything that occurs to your mind, God is other than that. Yes, that's, and then the question arises, and it's a question which can preoccupy you once you get into it, whether this negative way, that is this way of apprehending something by what it isn't, is, can be called rational or is in some way beyond reason. And I certainly think it's not a rational way. I think reason requires positivity, positions. Well, there's a a great meeting between Averroes and Ibn Arabi, the the great um, theosophist from Spain. And uh, his way was just very intuitive and uh, based on these spiritual unveilings. But he met Averroes, and Averroes asked him, is, is what I'm doing the same as what you're doing? And he said, yes. And Averroes smiled, and then he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and together those were the truth, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, but look, here's, here's another aspect of the question we're asking then. We've been talking about what's called ontology, that is uh, the kind of what it means to to seek to know being and what it means to follow being beyond itself. But I guess the more urgent question is how one gets people interested in it. Because most people when they hear if you if you say metaphysics it's bad enough. If you say ontology it's awful. And even our students who come to us precisely because they have some inkling about these things, even they get bored or are put off because it all seems so difficult. So the question is how to make it approachable. Do you do you have some notions? Well, I think one thing for me is I try to remind people that consciousness itself is is really a spiritual experience, that just being alive is a spiritual experience, that I think people the fact the the great mystery of the ocean of the, of the intellect and and what that is 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 just such a extraordinary thing and and we can see it it's it's much more evident in children because they're natural philosophers and they're natural metaphysicians they're the the obsessive question of every 3-year-old or 4-year-old is why and i think something happens between kindergarten and and the end of high school, which is putting out that extraordinary flame, that desire that that in the in the at the outset of the book of metaphysics is that all all people desire to know, they want to know, and children display that incredibly. And I think schooling does such a a horrible job at at maintaining that well, fire. It's partly because, especially in this country, people are afraid that they're going to impinge on somebody's prejudices or beliefs I, well there's a very there's a very aggressive secularity that's 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 now proselytizing and and unfortunately i mean religions have a pretty abysmal track record in allowing for difference and there's been so many just historical examples of the repressive nature of religion when it's in power. And I think um, for that reason, there's there's been such a, especially in the West, uh, unfortunately, Christianity in some of its iterations 
because it didn't allow for any dissent or any questioning. I, and I think about just these incredible intellects that, that were clearly seeking the truth and ha- because they arrived at different conclusions than were burnt at the stake or, or impaled or something horrible happened to them. I mean, even Socrates himself, right, just for asking troubling questions, uh, ends up being confronted with the state. I mean, that that's one of the ironies, I think, of this attack on on, on the quote-unquote canon and on these um, so-called dead white men, that so many of them were persecuted uh, in their yeah, lifetimes. But Hamza, here's the oddity of it. One can blame the Athenians for executing Socrates, though actually the hmm. number of jurists against him was very small. A very small but number. Yeah. On the other hand, one could blame our time for not dreaming of doing anything like that. Well, that, <laughs> I think that's that's what Solzhenitsyn, he was so troubled when he came to America because in Russia, people risked their lives to read him. And here, well, this is, I think this is the, you know, people forget there were two great visions in the 20th century. One was, was Orwell's and the others was Huxley's. And I think Huxley's vision is the more accurate one. Uh, 1984 came along and and everybody breathed a sigh of relief, um, feeling that maybe Orwell was wrong. But I think they forgot about Soma and just the, the Huxleyan nightmare, which is where you didn't need to control people in that way because they were all amused. They're already, yeah, in just amusement, amusing themselves to death, um, as as uh, Neil Postman put I, I, it, you know, it sounds as if I I wished Americans would persecute people and execute them for their. <laughs> That's not my idea. <laughs> no, of course not. Right, but but it's yeah, no, it's a point well taken. Yeah, that that it it has meaning, and and in some ways the power of these ideas, uh, are they're very threatening because they. They, they challenge all the basic assumptions that so many people are born into and, and grow up with. And it's, it's always a wonderful thing to see, and I'm, I'm sure in your extraordinary career you've seen this many times, of these, these lights that go off in the minds of, of young people when they're confronted yeah. with, with... But now, Hamza, tell me something. Do you think they go off because of things you say to them? So how no. does one do it? I mean, we're teachers. We're supposed to do something. I think, I mean, I like the metaphor of, of the midwife, that you're birthing something, that you help facilitate a process of awakening. Yeah, in other words, you ask questions. Asking questions is certainly one of the best ways. I think that having them also to feel safe enough to, to question themselves is very important. I think important. that's and right. You have to do dangerous things in safe settings. That's right. what a good school is yeah. like. One of the ironies, I think, of the 20th century, and now we're into the 21st century, is people that are attracted to literature. It becomes a, a secular religion, but the, but most of what they read that they find inspiring were written by profoundly philosophical and religious people. I, I don't you can, I don't think you can divorce 
the deeply dyed spirituality of Jane Austen from her work. Well, she's a particularly good example because uh, she was uh, uh, deeply devout in her private life, and yet all her clergymen are funny figures. It's exactly. Wonderful. It is wonderful I, that she does that because that's one of the tragedies of religion is the so-called representatives because the, the, the deepest spirituality is very often in those people like Emily Dickinson or Jane Austen that have these extraordinary private yeah, lives. Look, I want, I want to go back to the practical pedagogic aspect of that. That is, how do you do what you called persuading mm. people that ordinary life has a spiritual aspect to it? Well, well, here's what I, one one thing that I would say: we have we have awakenings in life. I mean, one of the first awakenings is is obviously our our the just emotional awakening. Children are just steeped in emotion of joy and anger and frustration, and you see it in babies is when they when they're screaming um, until they get the breast, and then they're they're perfectly content and. And 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 then there's obviously a, a a physical awakening that occurs, the the sexual awakening of the adolescent, and 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 there's you uh, left out what I think of as the greatest revolution, the terrible twos, when people right. show they have a will, the will exactly, yeah. But then there's the intellectual awakening, and and unfortunately that's very often delayed. I think a great teacher can do it, can help facilitate that. And and that I it certainly happened for my father. I mean, my father, who was a very good athlete, and he actually was interested in sports. He went to Fordham initially to to he wanted to play football. Uh, Vince Lombardi was the coach there at the time, and he wanted to play there. So he went. He was at Fordham, but then he read the Seven Storied Mountain by Thomas Merton, and there's a chapter on Mark Van Doren, and. It's it just had such an impact on him that he he transferred to Columbia, and for the next four years he took every single class and he audited all the classes of Van Doren, and then spent the rest of his life rereading the books that he'd read with Van Doren. But it was definitely for him a profound intellectual awakening that occurred, and and he 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 spent a lot of time trying to understand what was Van Doren's secret. Because he, he, he was so different. He said all the teachers at Columbia were, they were extraordinary. They, many of them were very brilliant. But he said there was just something so qualitatively different in the, in the experience that he had in Van Doren's classroom. And Columbia still gives the Van Doren Excellence in Teaching Award. But he, he, he really wanted to understand what it was. And he felt that at the root of it, it was this... Um, it was it was it was this incredible intellectual humility uh, that that he had, and this ability he said to particularize universals through um, great works. Yep, but look, the world needs one teacher to every twenty students at least, right? Where are they all going to come from? Right. They're not all going to be Vandorans. I mean, this is this an un insoluble problems of education i mean i think it's education has been it's just been a human problem and also just the philosophy of education like what we've seen it in our lifetimes 
that there's been a real departure from this idea of education as a place where one finds oneself, one explores truth to a very vocationally driven type of education. I mean, it's very interesting that so many of our liberal arts colleges are suffering in the United States, and there's so much money in the STEM well, areas. Well, yeah, because that's thought to be socially useful. See, right. I'm going to try something on, on you. I've had a notion. You know, we have this graduate institute where the people who come are mostly anywhere in their 20s, but sometimes in their 70s. And I have the sense that that's where our real future lies, that there's something... We think of college education as being between, say, 16 and 23, 18, 20, or 22. That's the normal college age. It's the worst possible age for educating people, on the one hand. There's some things, they're still young, they learn easily, uh, they're full of enthusiasm of some sort or other. But if you... If they were to, if you ask them, what spiritual business preoccupies you, they'd look at you and they'd say, that girl over there or that boy over there. They think about being in love and not being loved back, or about uh, why there isn't anyone who cares about them at the moment, and they, they're all, you know, they're with people of the same age, and we expect them to be reading difficult stuff of a high intellectual order while they're thinking about love affairs that doesn't work. If you want a very interesting read, you look at some of the debates about co-educational schooling when they, when they first introduced it in the U.S., because uh, there's some really interesting arguments against it for that yeah. very reason. Well, to me, it it makes sense if the kind of education that one expects a college to provide came later in life than it does at the moment. Uh, our graduate institute students are in some ways easier to teach than the undergraduates because they're really ready. They've got past a lot of problems, or if they're in the middle of the problems, they think of them in more thoughtful ways. So if some great change were to take place, and I think it's actually on the brink of happening, I would say that the kind of education we both believe in, what's called liberal education, is much better for midlife than it is for the young. Right, but the tools of, of the liberal education, which are the arts, have to, have to be learned yeah, early. Yeah, they have to be learned early. That, I agree, yeah. And they're hard. That's the other thing. One, is, one of the troubling aspects of our culture is, is this, I, I, I don't want to say anti-intellectual, it's something deeper than that. It's, it's, a, it's a real distrust of civilization. And I think a lot of our young people have really fallen under that spell. I don't think people realize the 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 real sacrifice in those early years. I mean, liberal, which means free. My father used to say, because music, he was a pianist, and one of the things he talked about was the discipline of the piano, that if you go up and just pound on a piano, it sounds horrible. But over time, through that honing of the practice, 
something extraordinary happens where the person is free. It's very disciplined. You have to learn the practice. But when you become the master, you have a type of freedom. And he, and that's the one who leads the line and is able to go out and improvise. It's the idea of, of you can break the rules of grammar once you've mastered the rules of grammar. There's another side to it. On the one hand, we've become slightly wild. On the other hand, you know, there's Huck Finn. He wasn't much for formal education, right? And yet he's the right type. He's the kind of human being you'd want to be on a raft drifting down the Mississippi with. Yeah. And and, and he's a philosopher. That's what I mean. Also. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. See, I, <laughs> I, 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 I've got your dialectical secrets, Dr. Brand. So... <laughs> There's something extraordinary. Some of the most fascinating people I've ever met are 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 um, you know illiterate people that I met in in West Africa. Just extraordinary people. So I think I think there's something I'm not. Uh, there's something to be said for that. And I think there's a definite danger in a type of uh, intellectual arrogance that comes from uh, being steeped in in tradition and in civilization. We've all seen those characters. They're quite horrible. Well, the the intellectuals have a lot to answer for, yeah. It, yeah, exactly. And But I still feel civilization's bad enough. The lack, lack of it is worse. I, I agree, yes. Exactly. The lack of it can be quite terrifying. The Hobbesian w- world where predation is a norm, it's quite horrible. I mean, one of the great gifts of, of a civil society is, is to go out without fear. There's a wonderful... Um, Arab Bedouin poet, he says, I heard the howl of a wolf and, and I felt a stetness to be, it's like I, I, I felt some intimacy with it. And then I heard the, the, the voice of a man and I almost flew out of my skin <laughs> because he, he knows what to expect from the nature of the wolf. But the, the human being <laughs> in the state of nature is you don't know what you're going to get. And and so and this is why the humanities, and just the word itself, is such an extraordinary word, that, because it does humanize us. I think there's something quite extraordinary about the refinement that can occur to the human self through that deep discipline and through a, a, a lifelong but commitment. Look, Hamza, isn't there a a difficulty about the humanities? Namely, the humanities are not much for quantity. They seem to be at odds with the quadrivium. In other words, it's hard to locate them in, in the humanities, by which I mean mathematics and physics. I well, I think it's I, I think it's a problem. I I think uh, I I mean one of the great philosophical pursuits also is that quantitative side of things, um, and and oddly enough, many of our greatest philosophers were brilliant mathematicians. See, I want to ask how. In the Islamic or uh, uh, pedagogical traditions, how is what we call the quadrivium dealt with? I mean, they they clearly were steeped in the quadrivium, and uh, Nasiruddin Atusi, one of the great scholars of Persia, who r- wrote some really important works, especially in theology, but he he was a polymath and wrote pretty much on every subject under the sun but he he says that the foundations of knowledge are seven and he he 
enumerates the seven pillars the seven of wisdom. The seven liberal arts? Yeah. They had an obsession with Euclid, the, yeah, the Muslims. One easily I mean, might. Yeah, yeah they, they, they really were obsessed with him. And, and that's why there's so much geometrical patterning. See, um, this is, is one way that we try to solve the problem of liberal learning, which is to be as elementary as possible. We try to yeah. make the works uh, original in the sense of being at the origin, and therefore often simple and uh, beautiful and not hard to uh, grasp and beginning you know they spent half a year more than half a year doing Euclid and uh, so uh, that's something the traditions seem to share. I think that's one of the things that struck me the fact that you're doing those things at St. John's is amazing because you know in high school geometry they don't prove any of these things they just they learn the functionalities of them but they don't really do like the 47th proof in that book they don't, one they don't do the proof they learn the theorem without the proof yeah <laughs> that's terrible. Uh, that's just funny <laughs> well it's sad yeah yeah it's it's I think it's very sad because I think when, when people do those proofs, that, that's a case of the light going off. And then just seeing everywhere, just seeing the geometry of existence, the Fibonacci sequences in flowers and things, where, where the, those things open up. I mean, again, we get back to wonder. I think that's mathematics is one of the most extraordinary and wondrous aspects of 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 life really just that that we're constantly dealing with number and quantity and physics and movement and change and the fact that that the subjects become so dry and removed from that and i think that's where uh, that's where there's a just a great loss in education that in that instillment of wonder in, in students which young people, and that's the other thing getting back to discipline, is that young people, they thrive, especially, uh, uh, you know, that, that first, that, what they, traditionally was the grammar school age. They love the discipline. They love the rules. One of the things that I saw with my children, which was so interesting, when I would read them stories, uh, I, I'd get bored because they wanted to hear the same stories. So I would change them. I would change them and they'd get really upset. You know, they would say, it's not like that. Do it that. right. Yeah, it's, yeah <laughs> say it the way it is. Yeah. And, and that, again, it gets back to the, the newness of it that, it, it's, that there's something new to them about it, that's, that state of wonder, um, which is, is, is really interesting. You know, one of the things, one of my favorite poems is a poem by... Van Doren, since on the topic of uh, of wisdom, philosophia, and I and in some way I think you really embody uh, the poem. But he he says he says slowly slowly wisdom gathers golden dust in the afternoon, somewhere between the sun and me, sometimes so near that I can see, yet never settling later soon. Would that it did, and a carpet of gold spread west of me a mile or more, not large so that I might lie face up between the earth and sky, and know what none has known before. Then I would tell the secrets of that shining place, the web of the world, how thick, how thin, how firm with all things folded in, how ancient and how full of grace.
And I think that you're somebody that spent a lot of time in that shining place and know things that none have known before. So it's quite, I mean, I can see that just from my own reading of your work. Yeah, do you look, <laughs> I want to draw back from that a little. Do you think there are things that one can learn that none have known before? I do. I think each one of us is so unique in their composition and in their background and in their understanding that what they know, you will know Plato in ways that, well, that I could true. never it's know him. It's true, it's qualified so specifically that it seems uh, unique, but it, if it's true, it can't be unique, right? I mean, you can't. Well, I, th I I agree with you in that ultimate sense of what truth is. But I think, you know, we have a wonderful saying in the Islamic tradition, there are as many paths to God as there are souls of men. It's each one of us takes that unique journey that's only ours and ours alone. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me, that we do it in our own way. But we don't do a different thing. We just do it in ways specified to us as learners, but not to the object as being truthful. I don't think it means it in some solipsistic sense of it. I think it means it in, a, in that it's uniquely your own, just like your death will be uniquely your own. Maybe May you have a long life. You make the world a more shining place by being in it, Dr. Brand. Um, I, we, we're we're coming to the end of uh, of our time. Well, Hansa, thank you so much for <laughs> for, for all the compliments. <laughs> I'm easily flattered. <laughs> no, no, I'm not flattering you. Yeah, you. Uh, I'm I'm only speaking what's true. Hopefully, uh, we'll we'll keep the conversation going. I hope so too. Yeah. All right. God bless. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Thank you for listening to the Renovatio podcast. As always, please visit renovatio.zetuna.edu for more podcasts, videos, articles, and to purchase current and past issues of Renovatio, the Journal of Zaytuna College. Thank you.